Hello, everyone. Robert Walker here, along with Caleb Pierce, and we are Sheep Things Podcast. Our goal with this podcast is to get down to the basics with industry leaders, associations, breeders, owners, vets, suppliers, and anyone else we can find to hear their stories and firsthand experiences. Hopefully, we will ask the right questions to see what makes them successful, how they got started, and what they see for the future of the sheep industry. We hope to have something new weekly that we can share, so stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates as they are published. Stay tuned as we try to share our learning experience with you all as we dive into the sheep industry together. Well, everyone, we have a really special podcast for you today with a very special guest, Dr. Charles Parker. Uh, Dr. Parker has been involved in the sheep industry his entire life, having grown up in the industry, worked as a researcher in the industry, um, and worked for Ohio State University, worked as the director of the U.S. Sheep Experiment Station out here in the great state of Idaho, and uh, has received numerous awards for his work. Um, both from ASI and, and many other organizations, including the Katahdin Association, having named him one of the few honorary members. Um, today in the podcast, we talk a little bit about his early history, his education, um, how he developed his education in Ohio and Texas and around the country. And we talk about his early work and some of the impacts that he made um, and all the way up until the point where he comes out to the sheep experiment station here. So stay tuned for future episodes, but enjoy this episode with the amazing um, and the, the very knowledgeable and, and the incredible Dr. Charles Parker. Well, Dr. Parker, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on the podcast. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk to us and our listeners. And uh, we're just both super excited to have you on and all of your experience. Um, so again, thank you so much for coming on. Well, it, uh, my stage in life, I appreciate being remembered and uh, given the opportunity to visit with you. Well, as soon as we started talking to people about doing a podcast and talking about history and Katahdin's, uh, your name popped up over and over and over. Uh, so here we are. Well, I, I, I watched I watched the uh, breed being born and I watched the uh, new uh, leadership take place and uh it's been it's been a real interesting uh thing to visualize and see uh in terms of going from practically no sheep to uh leading the registrations of all the breeds now yeah yeah Yeah, it's a pretty impressive journey for sure so why don't you maybe start off if you would by Tell us a little bit about your background, um, where you grew up, um, if you grew up in agriculture, kind of your, your background with agriculture, and then um, we can kind of go through into your education. Um, just kind of maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and your history. Okay, well, uh, trying to look back and see what's happened in my life, I, I think as the saying goes, I'm one of those that arrived by fate. Uh, my family, uh, has a long sheep raising history and um, extends about four generations here in the eastern foothills of Appalachia and eastern Ohio. And uh, they came into the area 
shortly after the War of 1812, they kind of freed things up, and they arrived in 1818. Uh, my father was a real sheep man, and uh, I learned a lot from him and how he depended on information and experiences to uh, improve production efficiency. And uh, that's been one of the real things that uh, I think has influenced me in looking back and trying to figure out how I got to where I was. Uh, he raised blacktop Delane Reno sheep, and uh, it was one of the first Reno types that was selected for both meat and wool. And I remember going to uh, Michigan with him when I was a very young person and uh, buying, uh, buying some uh, ewes uh, uh, from, from a breeder there in Michigan. And uh, then I remember uh, his uh, deciding to show his sheep at one of the regional sheep shows. He didn't know it was a regional marine show at the time. But uh, he showed the sheep, and uh, he didn't do well. Uh, but the judge came around and sort of complimented him on his sheep. And, of course, he didn't. The merino type that he liked and the blacktop breeders liked was more open face, pure wrinkles. That wasn't the show type sheep then. So uh, the take-home story from that, which I never forgot, was he said there's a show sheep and a farmer sheep. And uh, I thought that kind of said something about the future and uh, looking at things that are more objective in terms of productivity. So that was that was kind of a, an early beginning of my experience. What, what, but, was, uh, the, what was the breed again? Uh, Blacktop Delane Merino. Wow. And it was, uh, it was the first Merino type. This was about 1820 that started selecting for both meat and wool. And uh, that wasn't common at all in the merino sheep because they were all about selecting for wrinkles and more wool production and all that. And uh, back in the earlier days, why they knocked twins in the head. So you can imagine what that did to lamb crop percentages over the years. <laughs> so it was, uh, it's been an interesting history on that side of the world. As a fence, I should say. Yeah, you may have. Anyway, to, my dad depended. My you, dad depended a lot on extension bulletins, and, and he interacted strongly with a county agent. He got into the hybrid seed corn early on, and phenothiazine came out as an enthymetic for internal parasites. He got that directly from the company in Indiana, and. Uh, we attended, uh, he attended sheep days, and I'd, he'd take me along with him, and I never will forget one in 1950. Claire Terrell was there. He was the head of the U.S. Sheep Experiment Station at the time. He was a guest speaker. And I never will forget him saying that 70 to 90 percent of the genetic improvements in a flock is determined by using outstanding rams. And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. And uh, my dad was a cert certainly a believer of that because I remember he raised uh, purebred rams for sale. He'd have 30 to 40 to sell a year. And uh, one year a fellow from West Virginia came around and wanted to see his stud rams. And, and uh, my dad was working in the field, so I was 
showing the, the fellow around, and he said, uh, is that ram for sale? And I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, well, I'd like to talk to your dad. So he talked to my dad, and he said, I'll offer you $500. Well, back in 1951 or two, that was big money. My dad wouldn't even give it a second thought. You keep your good rams because you can't you can't get by without having the right kind of rams. So that was that was some of my early learning, and uh, probably influenced me to the extent that I didn't realize at the time. But looking back, I think it it uh, had an effect. So I don't know whether you have any questions about that or not. Well, uh, we're, we're us being hair sheep guys, you'll have to explain to us the whole wrinkle, you know, the <laughs> wrinkled skin stuff. I, I've seen it and heard it, but I really don't know yep. anything about it. So you may have to explain that to us and most of our listeners probably. <laughs> well, we, uh, this, this Merino thing started early on. It was in the early 1800s when they, when the Napoleon war was over, then the Spain left marinos out of, out of the country because they wouldn't do that previously. So they came into this country and of course they had real fine wool. It was the best wool in the world. And uh, people selected for wool and then they thought that they selected for cheap with wrinkles. And, and the wrinkles, I'm talking about wrinkles from nose to toes. Wow. And uh, they uh, thought they'd get more wool. Well, they got more wool, but uh, they didn't get much else. And uh, back in the early 1800s, 1890s, I think they said manure was twice the value of meat. So the only thing was wool. And so uh, all the emphasis was on wool production. And about 40% of the flocks at that time were were weathers because they produced more wool than the females. So that, that was really an extreme amount of emphasis on wool production. But by the 1950s, things begin to change and I mean they talked about in the late twenties that you know, wool could no longer pay the bills for keeping sheep. Well you had to look at lamb crop percent then and they had real poor lamb crop percentages. I mean it was even at the research center at Worcester when I was there as a graduate student it was only uh eighty five percent. Wow. And so uh but my dad's flock averaged about that same time, about 140 to 150. And uh, it was just because of a different type of sheep altogether. And he selected for, I'm not sure he selected for multiple bursts all that well, but he was managed to flock well and had the right genetics to experience that. But anyway, that's, that's the way it was. And uh, how I got from uh, a wool sheep to a hair sheep was another story that we'll talk about later <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh it's been an interesting experience yeah so back you, to my uh go ahead well, i was just gonna say so you you obviously grew up around livestock and specifically around sheep um, what made you decide to pursue a career in um you know obviously the the sheep genetic world in which you've worked and 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 working at it from a research standpoint um, what kind of made you? Well, I, I bought do that? I bought my first flock of sheep of my own for 4-H and FFA, and mm-hmm. I bought Corydales. And at the time, in the late 40s, Corydales was the oncoming new breed to replace the 
the Reno raid that was being phased out. So that's that's when I uh, got started in the chief. And uh, in 4-H and FFA, it gave me opportunities to see how things were out in the real world. And uh, I was on the judging teams, livestock and wool judging teams. And and uh, it just uh, interested me. And we kept going to sheep days at Worcester. And the professor in charge of sheep research there was very outstanding. And it just seemed like a positive thing. And our whole family depended on uh, sheep at the time. It was uh, it, it was our major emphasis in terms of we had two uh, two hundred forty acres and it was a mixed farming operation. That uh, sheep was the primary income, and uh, so that's that's kind of what probably set me off. And when I was uh, when I started in the college, I was starting the College of Agriculture and. The county agent talked to the chairman of the Department of Animal Science and said, this fellow's interested in sheep. And so he lined me up and I got a job in the, to work in the sheep barn at Ohio State and stayed in the sheep barn for the first two years. And so I got exposed to, to that. And uh, when I was on the Ohio State judging team, we went to uh, Chicago for the Little International and I had my Cordell flock, of course, by that time, and I saw this national Cordell ram, and it was owned by University of Wyoming. And uh, I, I met the, the man, the, he was the sheep manager of the flock, and I said, is the ram for sale? And he said, yes, he's for sale. And so he kind of gave me a price, and I thought, well, you know, that's way beyond me. But anyway, later on, I ended up buying the, Champion Ram, he's had, had it sent back from Laramie, Wyoming to me. And that kind of established my Cordell flock. And so after I graduated from college in 57, I sold my flock and and uh, had enough money then to uh, get a master's degree. Got it out of Ohio State, worked with sheep, uh, sheep research problem. And in 1958, I graduated with a master's degree and was offered an associate professor, associate graduate degree at Texas A&M University. And so in 1958, my wife and I uh, moved to Texas and uh, started a new life in a new world. I'd say that was probably a culture shock going from Columbus, Ohio to <laughs> South Central Texas. <laughs> Yes, it was, and of course, this was in 1958, so you can imagine all the aspects of that, and uh, I, I was introduced to, I remember, and this is not a very, maybe a good time to even mention it, but one of the professors that was there, he took me out to see a, I think it was a Shropshire breeder, and he said, where are you from, boy, and I said, I'm from Ohio. Oh, he said, you're one of those Yankee guys up there. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but I got along fine. And uh, I really enjoyed my experience at Texas A&M. Yeah, definitely. Got to so help raise my wife to, to, uh, to move on. I, I majored in population genetics. But mm -hmm. all, all this whole thing, as I was 
looking at my experiences on the farm and in the classroom, I realized that a farming farm operation or a good sheep operation is dependent on interdisciplinary aspects. I mean, it's not genetics, it's not nutrition, it's not health, it's not economic marketing. It's kind of the combination of the all and balancing that with the resources that are available in order to optimize production and maximize your production and uh, profitability. And that, that's influenced me all the way through my research. And I always tried to work on problems that I thought were real evidence that needed attention. But if I wasn't trained in that area and I worked in an environment, I came back to Ohio State in 63. And then I went to Worcester up to the experiment station up there in charge of sheep research in 65. And I got to know the people in nutrition and health and all that and uh, had a great opportunity to interact and develop a lot of research projects together with those people. And uh, that's what kind of helped to me make a difference. So that was sort of where, uh, where the background lies. Yeah, definitely. So I guess how many years then were you down at, at Texas A&M? Did you go back up to Ohio as soon as you finished um, your degree? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I finished in 61. Mm-hmm. Went back to Columbus at the, at the university in 61. And then uh, in 65, I went to Worcester to be in charge of the sheep research program and also work with the beef cattle breeders in my Population oh, okay. genetics training. Yeah, I worked in both species of you know. Yeah, and did you but the first big project? First big project that at Worcester in '65 was electric fencing. Oh, wow. I've been uh, I, I'd given talks different places, and people said, "Well, you know, they they weren't going to go into raising sheep because fencing was too expensive. You had to have a woven wire fence with a a barbed wire." or two above that, and it was just so expensive. Well, I just happened to be, my father, uh, we had a telephone line that was taken down, and he kept all the wires that he could get from the community, and I found out from him that electric fence could work. I was told by some pretty prominent people that electric fence and wool, you know, you can't, can't use it, it won't work. Well, I saw it working, so when we went to Worcester, we really put the move on it and turned that whole thing around. And I remember going to uh, Oregon for giving a talk once in 73 or 4, talked about electric fence, and uh, went to the end of the Willamette Valley. That's where they finished a lot of land. They, they had no electric fence, and everything was woven wire or something. I went back 10 years later, and every one of them had electric fence. And uh, so it, it made wow. a big difference in a lot of places. Yeah. I don't know whether there's any operations now that don't use electric fence, but uh, yeah, it, it was it was brand new then, I can tell you. Yeah, my operation wouldn't exist without electric fencing. It's uh, <laughs> that's, that's what probably keeps... that's probably uh, the equivalent of Texas getting barbed wire back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that uh, that was that was a big thing too. I forget yeah. what year was that that was, but uh, it was in the 
eighty sometime. So that that was one that was my one of my first projects at Worcester, and um, I wrote an article about it. It was fifty years ago in nineteen fifty six. Uh, that I published at a cheat day, and we had a cheat day and featured it on the front cover. So I wrote an article about it, and uh, she put it in the Shepherd magazine uh, in 19, uh, or 2016, 50 years after we did it. Uh. But I got into, I worked with a with a with uh, another person up there, uh, Van Stavern. He was uh, a Van Curen. He was a uh, specialist in in forages and forage production, and uh, of course that's that's pretty key in the sheep industry. And uh, one of the early things we did was look into winter grazing, where we would harvest the the crop. And at that time, it was Alice Chalmers small round bales, and we'd harvest those round bales, leave them in the field, and then uh, turn the sheep in in the fall, and they would eat the regrowth that occurred. We usually used tall pesky, and they would eat the regrowth, and then after the regrowth was gone and with controlled electric fencing, they would eat the, eat the bales, and then we'd move it into the next field. And we did that up until the time, take mature use, we did that up until the time that they were about six weeks ahead of pregnancy. And they got nothing at all, and they had no housing or anything, except in real severe cases of weather. And uh, that winter grazing was, uh, it knocks the, knocked the price off of winter feed by unbelievable numbers. So that yeah. was that was in early on. And, and we, and we had a few day. Would... Excuse me? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask how much how much snow cover you were getting when you were doing that? Uh, we, we had snow cover 10 to 12 inches at times, yeah. but those round bales, and some of them were frozen, and they would eat in from the ends. I remember seeing some bales where they ate in, they ate into the bale from the ends because the, the cover was frozen on the round bale. Wow. But then this, uh, then, then, uh, then Karen went to Australia in about 1970, and he saw that they had a big round baler over there, and he made arrangements to get uh, one of those shipped to the United States, and that was the first large round baler in the United States. And in 1971, at our sheep day, we were using big round bales then at one of the farms, and. Uh, we had 1,250 people come out for sheep day in 1971 to see the big round bales and see how the winter grazing was and all that. That was the largest sheep day crowd I think uh, they ever had at uh, ARDC. Yeah, that's quite a few people. Well, I can tell you, if, yep. if we get 10 or 12 inches of snow cover in Middle Tennessee on a regular basis, I'm going to move farther south. <laughs> Yeah, well, that uh, that happens up here, that's for sure. <laughs> well, well, don't move that, the next Robert. thing I got involved with, I'm just going from one thing to another. I don't know whether this is what you want, want to hear or not, but this is a research that I got involved with at Worcester. Next thing I got involved with was we had a breeding project there 
cooperated with two or three states. In the breeding time, it took about 22 different breeding groups, and there would be 18 to 20 ewes per breeding group. And the rams were assigned at random so that everything could be equalized. Mm-hmm. And uh, I learned about homosexuality in sheep there. I remember we had the rams in the pen once, and we were getting ready to take rams and put them into the breeding, breeding pens, and the two or three of the rams would always try to jump back into the ram pen. And uh, that was uh, something that we did more research with at the boys. But anyway, some of these rams, um, the uh, ewes, would have as many as 1.8 lambs, 18 to 20 head of ewes. Mm-hmm. And in other cases, they would only average about one point, I think 1.7 was the low end. And uh, that really aroused me, and I got interested in what I called the ram effect. And we tried, we had graduate students that I worked with, looked at semen quality, we looked at behavior and all that. And uh, the repeatability of this ram effect in a purebred breed, the Targhee breed was primarily the one we worked with, mm-hmm. wasn't repeatable from one year to the next. But then when we started using crossbred rams in conjunction with the purebred rams, the crossbred rams consistently sired more lambs born than what the purebred rams did. And we realized that there was a ram effect, and that carried on in, then into research that we did at Dubois. But that was the first time that the ram effect had been identified to any significance that I was aware of. Yeah. So, so the value of crossbred rams was a real plus in terms of the commercial industry, of course. And when fin sheep came along, well, that was pretty much a natural. Yeah. So, so you mentioned that that there was a difference in percentage. What was the what was those differences as far as the the numbers again between between groups? Yeah, uh, I think I think the highest was one point eight one one year, and then. The, and then the same year, same setting, different pen, different ram, 1.17. Wow. That's yeah. pretty dramatic. <laughs> yeah, it got, it got your attention all right. And there, there was some relationship in terms of semen quality. Mm-hmm. But the thing of it was, some of that wasn't repeatable from one year to the next in the ram. Yeah. And uh, so, but when we got to these crossbred rams, that was a different story altogether Mm -hmm. and when you say it was a different story is that do you mean like it was more repeatable in the crossbred rams it was was more consistent Mm -hmm. higher and more consistent yeah yeah well when we get well the other thing the other thing we did at worcester which was really off the scale was i think it was about 19 60, let's see, what was it? It might have been 1971 or two. We uh, built a new sheep barn, and uh, we were look- we started looking at confinement sheep raising. We had expanded metal floors and manure pieces passed down through, and it was scraped out to the end, and sheep were never put outside. We had ewes in that for as long as five years, and never was outside. Is that the facility? And we studied that. Is that the facility they have there now? Yes, 
Okay. I, I went so, there a couple years ago. We did a, I did a LAM 509 class at Ohio State. Oh, okay. We went up All there right. and toured that place. Oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Man, yeah, it's we a built good that shape. One was... the, you said 1971, somewhere in that I neighborhood? I think that was what it was. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you something that that really interested me of touring that facility was one of the barns there. It wasn't the one that had the floor. Uh, uh, the other barn that had a few turnout lots. They had yep. uh, they had some feeders that were kind of pinned on to some posts that uh -huh. was reversible, um, so they could use it for multi multiple things. Oh really? Yes. Well, I'm not. I'm not familiar with that. I haven't like, seen like that. they could feed hay at certain times of the year, and then they could flip. They could flip the end of that. Uh, I guess you would call a stall or whatever. They were like thirty or forty foot sections. They could take and flip those around to other uh, pieces to to make their facility more usable instead of just feeding lambs or whatever. It was pretty neat. I took a lot of pictures. Well, that's good. Well, anyway, we we got a lot of attention on that confinement raising. They were doing some in, in Illinois at the same time. And uh, we actually, uh, in evaluating the dietary needs, could be reduced 38% if sheep were in confinement. You didn't have parasites. You didn't have physically burning more energy and so on and so forth. But uh, that day kind of phased on. I don't think there's much of that happening anywhere right now. The other thing uh, I got involved with, and this was affected, influenced by my experience at home, my great, my grandfather had built a uh, silo back in the, I think it was, 1918, 1914, or something like that. And uh, we fed corn silage at home, but uh, everyone said you couldn't feed corn silage to sheep, they'd get listeria. Well, uh, decided to do some research on that at Worcester, and uh, we not only studied the listeria aspects of corn silage and why that could be, but we also compiled a complete diet, complete corn silage diet that we fed all the way up through into lactation. And it covered everything. We put urea on the silage at the time it was being ensiled, added mineral supplements, balanced out everything. So we had a complete corn silage diet. And I remember giving talks on that pipestone cheap uh, program several times and out in Colorado and uh, there was a lot of interest in that in that work at that time and the the uh, listeria problem we never had any listeria at all and in studying the bacteria composition shortly after the completion of the ensiling uh, took place we found nothing at all it looked like it'd be harmful to the sheep in wow. terms of bacteria. It's amazing how well, when that, rumors that get was, started. <laughs> how's that? I was just saying it's amazing how when rumors get started, they, they kind of spread and then 
sometimes oh, oh definitely they uh keep yeah, us definitely. from using helpful tools so <laughs> the other thing we did up there was in all this was trying to look at how efficiency could be improved whether it be feedlots whether it be labor efficiency whether and uh, the other thing that we did that uh, a graduate student took all the way back to texas and used it until his professional life was completed was uh, cornfield harvesting harvesting lambs in cornfield we put the lambs in when the leaves had just begin to turn like they were going to start firing the lambs would eat the lower leaves. About that time, then the corn would be indent. Then they'd eat the corn, and uh, they would knock over the stalks to get to the ears of corn. I've seen a few stalks occasionally scattered in the field where they'd eat the corn off the cob and it was still hanging on the on the stalk. <laughs> but anyway, we, we did that work. And we found out that the lambs could harvest corn uh, more efficiently than what you could mechanically. There was less waste. Wow. And uh, and we did that by supplementing. The only, the only feed we had there was we had a, a mixed mineral, and we supplemented that with uh, soybean meal. I think we had about a 10% salt, uh, 90% soybean meal, and that's all they got, and they they finished. They finished on the corn. On I've the seen cornfield. Then we divided. We divided those fields up with electricity, so they could, you know, then clean up one before they went on to the next. After the leaves were all eaten off, and before they started eating the corn. Yeah, I seen a, uh, another guy there in Ohio, an Amish gentleman. When we were doing our tours, um, he was running uh, Dorset ewes, and um, and he was selling sweet corn. And what he would do is he would turn his, his dry ewes into his corn. And uh, when, it, when it got up, you know, pretty tall, probably right before the ear started uh, being produced. And those sheep right. would pick, pick those bottom leaves off so that when it got time to uh, pick the sweet corn, it, it, there was no, nothing in his way and it was easy to get to. And he fed his sheep, you know, most of the summer with no issue, with no extra costs. And it, it kept it clean for him to harvest his sweet corn. So uh, that was a pretty cool, yeah. pretty cool concept there. Yeah, that would be. But he, he got them out of there before they started eating the yeah. ears of corn because they would <laughs> harvest the ears of corn a lot earlier yeah, he, than what you would with normal. Animals. He said uh, yeah. the trick was to never let them know that they can knock over a, a stalk, you know, and, uh, and he only seen them. He had a water tub there, you know, that was the only time he ever seen them was when they come to water. And then, uh, yeah. then he got them out right before they, the, the corn got to be where it would be an issue. Well, there's, there's ways of doing things. Yeah. And you the were other, talking the about other thing the, we did from, Go ahead. Oh, you were talking about the dry lot stuff and the uh, feed, full feed and all that. I, I've been to yeah. probably four or five, six facilities. Um, and I have to say, those are probably the cleanest, healthiest sheep I've seen, you know. 
I'm a oh, forage yeah. guy. I'm a pasture guy. And I used to think, oh man, that's horrible. But really it's been some of the cleanest animals I've seen. Yep. Yeah. If they're on a uh, expanded metal or someplace where they, you know, can be free of the fecal materials. why so uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty clean. Yeah. Well, the other thing, well, for feedlot lambs, we had a we had a contract that came through for us, and uh, we worked on an all concentrate diet, and we developed the pellet. And I say we, I was not directly involved because that's I'm not a nutritionist, but we did the work at, at the center, and we did developed a uh, finishing lamb pellet that you put with whole shell corn, and that's all you did, self fed it. And wow. Pipestone, uh, Pipestone uh, immediately adopted that back years ago, and uh, as far as I know, they still use this pellet uh, in their finishing slam finishing programs. I used to go to Pipestone a good bit, and was actually made an honorary member there one time, which is quite pleasing. But uh, they they did a good job at Pipestone with adopting technology. Yeah. Well, in 1968, in one of our field days, we had a fellow by the name of H.P. Donald from Scotland come and talk about Pinchy. And uh, he had a pretty good story to tell, and particularly about the lamb crop percentages. And uh, so I think it was a year or two later then, um, Minnesota imported Pinchy. And so did uh, USDA at uh, Maryland. And uh, in 1971, um, we got our first pin sheep from Minnesota and started to do some pin sheep research. And uh, that this pin sheep percent genetics change in lamb crop percent has been real significant for a lot of, of breeders. Uh, you could, you know, it was a one percent increase in lamb crop percent for every one percent increase in fin sheep. And if you took a quarter a half blood fin ram, which gave a quarter blood in the offspring and uh, of the lambs, a few lambs, well, then you got mm -hmm. a twenty-five percent increase in your lamb crop. So that added up in a hurry yeah. for a lot of flocks. But uh, then we got, then we were interested. Uh, there was a fellow by the name of Warren Foote at Utah State University, and he was interested in hair sheep, and he brought in some St. Croix hair sheep. He contacted us and the University of Florida and wondered if we would like to do a joint research program together with the folks there at Utah, and uh, I said yes, we'd be we'd be glad to do that. And we got interested real quickly. Uh, we got the Florida Saint Croix, which was a white hair hair sheep breed. Then we got uh, Florida natives, which were highly parasite resistant. From Phil Loggins, the guy that was cooperating uh, with us in Florida, 
and he'd been raising Florida natives and talking about parasite resistance for years, and people were just kind of ignoring it. Then we got Barbados out of Mississippi, and we created a composite breed there at Worcester and uh, used uh, some Targi genetics to kind of improve, improve the size and growth rate. And so that that's led us into initiating some genetic research in the area of gastrointestinal parasites. And uh, there was an outstanding uh, parasitologist by the name of Rupert Hurd, Dr. Rupert Hurd in, at Columbus Veterinary School. And uh, he had a graduate student, came to Worcester, and we worked, started working then with these hair sheep. And there were 10 total different research studies conducted with hair sheep at Worcester in a matter of about three or four years. And uh, we recognized some real important breed differences. We saw that there, there were lambs born that had what I called an innate resistance. They had no parasites at all. They would not get hardly any parasites, regardless of how young they were. We saw other lambs that had the acquired resistance. In other words, if they were exposed, then they responded in a positive nature to the immune. And we saw that genetics. Then we saw what we called the periparturian rise, which was in the ewes. The parasites that were ingested in the fall went into a, a hypobiosis or kind of a hibernation in the intestines of the ewe. And then in the spring, and it was associated with parturation, they had this periparturian rise where they started uh, having the laying, laying, the larvae started laying eggs. And uh, that was your new generation of worms for the, for the year. And that's, that was a major source of it. And there were, these Florida natives were zero for periparturian rise. So we combined these breeds and did some selection and came up with a composite, composite breed. And, uh, and then I'll tell you more about that later after because I left uh, Worcester in 1983. And, uh, but we had that developed at that time, along with this, all this research. Yeah. And that was, that was a real, a real opening uh, into the genetics of parasite resistance. And it yeah. certainly was a background of knowing more about what would happen when we got to the Katahdin sheep issue. And I, I first learned about Katahdin sheep, and I, I think it was in uh, 1980, 1976, I should say. In 1980, I visited the Peel farm, and Martin Peel had passed on at that time. But uh, they had about, oh, I suppose, seven or 800 head of Katahdin-type sheep. It wasn't a breed then. And uh, Michael Peel, it was kind of interesting. I don't know whether you've heard the story or not, but he was reading the the uh, um, let's see, what was it? Uh, National Geographic magazine. I think it was in 1956. Saw pictures in St. Croix of what they called goats coming out of a pasture field, and <laughs> that uh, some of these goats had tails. 
Well, uh, he knew immediately that that wasn't a goat. Peel did. And he got interested and contacted the people down in St. Croix and decided he had a he had a dream. He had the dream of having a, a, a wolves meat sheep. And uh, so he brought, I think he brought uh, two or three rams and a half a dozen ewes up from St. Croix and started his breeding program. And I think he died probably about 10 years after that. Uh, so Mrs. Peel was the one that was running the farm when I visited. But uh, I got a chance to see the St. Croix uh, story and, and uh, how it was created, uh, put in the, and crossed. He, he crossed them with several breeds, but one of the breeds was Suffolk to get them larger and more muscling. And uh, then the, the manager there was Charlie Brown. Got to know him real well. And uh, then Heifer Project International, which was in Missouri at the time, uh, I used to visit there and give talks, and they acquired Cotton's in 1981, where they were a breed. And Laura Callan, who became secretary of the Cotton Association later on, Laura Fortmire, and um, I met her at that time. So that was kind of the kind of the story there. The other, the other thing at Worcester, uh, I had another friend, and this, this is, this is where you get into this going back to this multidisciplinary thing. These things wouldn't have happened if we hadn't worked together, because I didn't have the ability to do everything, and they didn't have the ability to do some of the things. And working together complemented the program to the extent that you could get something done that had practical significance. And the next thing that happened was that the fellow, Dr. Russell Cross, in the veterinary department at Worcester, he and I applied for a foot rot study. And he said, and we agreed, he said, if I get the money, I'll support your project too. And I said, well, if I get it, I'll support yours. Well, he got the money because mine was too too out, out of range. <laughs> So he got the money, so we started doing some research together. And his research developed zinc sulfate that went the world around for uh, uh, foot rot bathing, bathing sheep for foot rot. Yeah. So that was the first time that that had been recognized worldly for a treatment. My contribution was I started selecting the parasite for foot rot resistance. And after about three or four years, I had a strain that was almost completely resistant. And uh, I reported that uh, genetic variation for foot rot. For, and this was the first time it, it had ever been in the literature, as far as I know. So out of, with about $3,700, we were able to come up with zinc sulfate and the idea that foot rot resistance was real, yeah, genetic and- resistance for foot so and, that kind of, uh, and if you're able to see ahead. progress in three or four years, um, that trait must have been at least fairly heritable then. Is it, um, is that one that you felt like was, was pretty easily um, heritable to move? Yes. Genetically? Yes. The big, the big thing of it is, though, so you see, you have to, you have to challenge the sheep with foot rock. 
in order to to know if they'll get it or not. Yeah. And the, and then we then we got some serum testing done later a little later on at a different lab, and they followed up with serum testing. And uh, I think I was involved with another project well, ten years later almost in New in New England states, and uh, there's a um, veterinarian veterinary researcher in Washington state that's taken that serum and is studying to see if they can identify from a genetic point of view uh, what some of the genes are that, that are involved with this foot rot resistance. Yeah. So that's in the making, but that's not here yet. Well, hopefully soon. <laughs> so that kind of that kind of ends up my story until I go to Du Bois in 1983, and uh, I can uh, try to answer any questions you have, or uh, that covers what I think I pretty much had outlined. Yeah. But if there's something something more that you want to talk about, why far away? <laughs> Yeah, well, I have a, a, a few questions for you. Um, so okay. you, you talked about that composite breed with the, the St. Croix and the Barbados and the uh, the Florida native. Um, yeah. And you mentioned how you crossed in, in Targi in order to, to build some size, because I would imagine those three breeds that you mentioned are all fairly small-framed. Um, yes, it, they are. Yeah. Did it take you a while to get an animal that was at least moderately framed, um, considering you were starting with those three breeds and and not, from my not, understanding, not very, not very, not very long at all. Oh wow. Okay. Because what we used, we used some, we used some crossbred rams, mm -hmm. and then uh, the ones that segregated out with, without wool. Yeah. Uh, you know, we could select and, and move on, and so uh, when I left to go to Dubois. We had, uh, there was a uh, research, one of the research uh, students under Dr. Hurd uh, that was just finishing his PhD. In fact, that's when he was doing a lot of research when I was there. And he was going to go to Florida, and we were going to work together on taking this composite breed type that, I, that we had developed down to Florida and do some studies. Mm. Well, to make a long story short, uh, that didn't work out. So there was, when I left, they they weren't interested in continuing that work. And uh, this gets into the next phase of the story. But that the Heifer Project International bought 75 of those ewes that had about 1,000 or less eggs per gram oh, in their okay. uh, fecal matter. And they took that those 75 ewes, composites that were there from Worcester, and mm -hmm. mixed them in with the St. Croix, with a, a Katahdin that they had there at uh, Heifer Project International. So that, that genetics got into the Katahdin pretty early on. Yeah. Well, that's that's really interesting. I didn't realize that that composite made its way into the the breed i'd never heard that story before so thank you for sharing yeah. that's, that's a pretty cool 75 history 75 head of the top use in that flock they've yeah. been selected for about uh, i've been selected for probably six years or so and and, and do you know uh, that 
did they use those as part of an upgrading program to bring them into the registered sheep um, to where they've made the oh, yeah. HSA yeah, font? Yeah, Heifer Project International did. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty you know, neat. That's their, their contribution, and they had quite a few Todd yeah. at one time. <laughs> their contribution was uh, a part of it. And, and when we got together at Dubois, and I'm jumping ahead here, but when we got together to decide about having a, a breed form formed, why the people at Heifer Project International, the manager, and then this... Uh, uh, Laura Fortmeyer, who was assistant, they were both there at the time. Mm-hmm. And then there was uh, the manager's father, who was a lawyer, was there. And then uh, Charlie Brown from Peel Farm was there, and myself. And we had this discussion about formation of a breed at that time. And that was in 1984 at Dubois, at, uh, at uh, Idaho Falls. It's a good place. So we'll talk about that the next time if you want to. <laughs> how, how close are you? How close are you to the sheep station, Caleb? How how far are you from there? Uh, probably about three hours. Okay, at, you're the, at the time. Oh, I worked there. I no, was I mean, Ca- there. Caleb lives in he lives in Idaho. I was curious if if he's made the trip. Oh, you're talking about oh yeah. Well, he's not too far from Idaho Falls. Yeah. Are you, Caleb? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I'm probably probably four and a half hours from Idaho Falls, and then probably yeah. three three and a half from the station. So, um, yeah, I've driven yeah. right past there and seen some of the the rangeland where the research some of the research takes place. But um, it's on my my list, um, and hopefully my my sooner list than my longer list <laughs> um, to to go and take a a tour of their the facility and and the work that they're still doing there. But um, yeah, well, I'm sure they'll be they'll be pleased to have you. Yeah, so so kind of going back to um, you know when when you were doing you know early research with sheep um, and just kind of more of the generic research as far as like the confinement operations and and just kind of more of the the sheep research in general. Um, was there specific breeds that you guys used at Wooster, um, or was it uh, just kind yeah. of we had, when I first got there, they had both Columbia and Targhee, but they're, they were so similar that I decided that we'd get, uh, we'd just keep maintaining the Targhees. Mm, okay. And so we had Targhees as the, as the main, main flock. And then we, we did have some Dorsets that we introduced and had them at one of the substations and the crosses. So we had some Dorset crosses with, Targhees. We crossed the fins with Targhees. And uh, so we pretty well depended on them as the base base yeah. breed. And and what made you decide to switch from or at least not switch, but to kind of remove the Columbias from the system and and move to just a, a sole uh you know, sole breed and to to pick just the Targhees? Well, the, the Targhee breed, uh, the wool was a little higher quality. Okay. And for us, the performance was uh, just a little, little better. Yeah. Plan performance. Yeah. And, uh, 
Well, there was a disappointment when we made that decision, obviously, by the Breed Association, and I understood. Uh, but we couldn't we couldn't run both of them. It was just, you know, it was needed. We need a base flock, and yeah. so that's the one we went with. Yeah. I just want to know if you're still married when you moved to Du Bois, because uh, that would be, you know, that's that, you know, you went to Texas and now you're going way <laughs> out there. I'm just surprised your wife even went with you. She went with me. <laughs> and uh, that's true had, love right there. We Kevin. had, we true had, uh, we, we had three sons and the youngest, the youngest was still in high school when we left to go out there. And, uh, it, it was it was kind of a sacrifice, but I think she felt good about our having gone, and we had a good experience in Idaho. Yeah, so so kind we, of we lived we lived in Idaho Falls, and I I spent the uh, week at Dubois, and I drove down for the weekends from Dubois to Idaho Falls. Yeah, but, uh, that that's high a school there was. Better. Excuse me. I said Idaho Falls would be a little better. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, well. They they had three high schools in Idaho Falls at the time, and then they had the uh, research uh, atomic research program going, and there were there were quite a few uh, military people there, and a lot mm-hmm. of uh, a lot of people there involved in uh, in that facility. Yeah, I'd say that, over over a thousand people or more. Work yeah, that, there. that facility definitely uh, still employs a, a lot of people and um, provides quite an ep- economic base for that that region. Um, you know, yep. between the the people that directly work there and then just the economic advantage it brings having that that large of an employer there, and it's pretty cool that we we have the the first city powered entirely by by nuclear power in the nation right here in Idaho. So exactly. Um, That's right. Yeah. So, um, this is just kind of a, a funny question. Um, so out here in Idaho, you know, I mean, you lived here for a long time. It's, you know, pretty small state and, and oftentimes people think like Iowa or Ohio. Um, <laughs> and when you say Idaho, yeah, that's right. I think you say that. So, so when you moved from Ohio to Idaho, did you have people that would uh, <laughs> mistake it and think that you lived in Ohio? And you're like, well, that's that's kind of uh, used to. <laughs> yeah, that that happened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah it was Idaho was kind of a strange state for some people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we enjoyed it. I I'd uh, I'd had relatives that lived in. Oh, in Colorado, and one time uh, I spent, I'd been to Idaho previously, and been to Yellowstone Park, and actually my wife and I stopped by the sheep station on our honeymoon. Wow. <laughs> so that that's sounds uh, like something I would do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure whether that was a mistake or not, but we did. <laughs> well uh, i'm in it wasn't, wasn't too far out of the way i'm in the trucking business so every time we go somewhere oh, i'm in a trucking business so every time we go okay. out of town or on on a vacation of any kind you know my, my family's pretty much used to me going through every industrial park of every town we go through 
It's just what yeah. you do. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll prepare uh, for the for the next time. I'll I'll start with uh, being in at Dubois and then coming back to Ohio and and uh, I spent some time in the American Sheep Industry Association. Yeah. And uh, so and then, uh, but that's that's when I really got involved with the Katahdin breed. Uh, yeah. Was after after I returned from Dubois. Yeah. Well, I know I'm definitely looking forward to it, and I'm sure that that our listeners will will be anxiously waiting for the next podcast. So, yeah, um, and I, I have a question for you to be thinking about and to be studying on because I'm one of these guys that I, I think out in the left field all the time. And uh, it's all right with all of your years of practicing with sheep and experimenting with different breeds. If you could start today. And starting from scratch and pick out of all the breeds that are in existence, what would you cross and what would you do to make a new breed? That's a good question, right? <laughs> I'll think about that for you. Because <laughs> we're, we're all experimenters. We all want to try something new. We all want to, you know, this and this and this. So it's just a, you know, logical question. Well, look, looking down the road, you know, this this whole pandemic thing has got things all messed up and uh, with the sheep industry and uh, with the wool situation right now. I mean, wool, I'm sure, doesn't pay for the shearing and the cost of producing it right now. And what what's going to happen to the bigger ranchers and so forth? Uh, a lot of concern there. And uh, I think... Uh, with the parasite resistance way out in front with Katahdin's, uh, that some some combination of this genetics is going to uh, take care of the Midwest and the South and the Southeast. And I'm not sure what's going to happen in the West. Yeah, at I the, think that's. Uh, oh, sorry. At the ASI no, in Scottsdale uh, back in January, there was a producer there from Oregon. Who, who built a processing plant uh, to take care of his own his own needs, and um, right. and he was talking about pelts and how used to you know a pelt you know a couple dollars here and there was added value, and in today's world this is in January this is nobody even knew we had a virus in January, and um, and he said he'd been composting five hundred plus pelts every week because it oh, cost wow. him to it, it it cost him to have them hauled off uh because of be there. the there's just there wasn't a value to them and uh you know that that's pretty scary thought that that there is something of value like a hide you know a leather a hide and and he's composting 500 plus a week because it cost Boy. him more to ship them somewhere even if the even if he give them away it cost him to haul them yeah, yeah well, that, that, that brings up that brings up another subject that's not really being recognized to the extent it should be in the uh, hair sheep the hair sheep have a uh, skin thickness that's entirely different and is highly valuable uh, for uh, garments 
And uh, I don't know, no one's talking about it, that there are companies that, that are using it, but uh, the early research has shown that it's, 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 uh, can produce a high-quality leather. Well, my buddy Mark Dennis in Louisiana talks about it every chance he gets. He carries his hides yeah. around in his pickup, and uh, he's been <laughs> preaching it for 10 years that I've known him. And, uh, but the yeah. hard part is, like the guy in Oregon, the hard part is if we're all doing five or 10 lambs at a time at a processor, you know, for a farmer's market or whatever, is gathering those hides right. up and sending them somewhere. You know, that's, that's right. He's always said, whoever figures that out, uh, we'll have, we'll have it, you know, we'll have a good deal. Well, that needs to get some attention and I'm surprised that it hasn't, but it did there for a while. There was a researcher at, uh, Texas tech, uh, that was working, uh, with some of the people. And then I think he's passed on, but, um, he looked at, he looked at the value of the quality of some of these pear sheep, uh, leathers and, and it's, it's good. Very good. Yeah. And I think the Dorper guys are pushing that as well, uh, with their volumes from Africa. Um, you know, they have a lot more volumes being at one place and uh, uh, selling to the automotive guys and luxury uh, higher end furniture deals as well. Yeah, well, um, I think we've we've covered probably, um, I mean, certainly haven't covered everything there is to cover, but just a, a little sliver of, of your experience and um, your knowledge really looking forward to the next time to kind of diving into your experience at Dubois and um, and then diving into kind of your work with Katahdin's and and the American sheep industry in general um, but again really appreciate you taking the time to to come on and uh, we will talk here very soon well let me know when you uh, want to schedule the next the next talk and we'll put that down on the list absolutely thank you very much yeah definitely oh you're welcome well enjoyed visiting with you well guys uh if if that conversation with dr parker doesn't get you fired up wanting more uh nothing will uh so stay tuned uh, we're gonna get a little more in depth about his research uh at at, at idaho and um and then along working with the polypays and with the katahdin breed so uh, stay tuned and uh, look forward to our next episode uh, with Dr. Charles Parker. Thanks for listening to the Sheep Things podcast. Stay connected to our website and Facebook page or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates. We want your feedback so you can email us at podcast at sheepthings.com for suggestions or comments. Thank you and see you later.